0: Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you here this morning. It's been wonderful to worship together. Uh, And this morning, if you weren't here with us last week, I feel like probably just a bit of explanation is due uh, again about this sermon. I want to make it in a minute, though, because there's an announcement that I'm supposed to make here. And so I want to do that as our kids line up at the back and you get your notes settled. Uh, For our time in God's Word together. And two Sundays will be the third Sunday of the month, and we uh, as a church gather on the third Sunday twice. We do it again not only in the morning, but in the evening. And this coming third Sunday uh, will be a lot of things all at once together in the evening. We will have uh, our Thanksgiving service, uh, where it's one of my favorite services that we do Uh, thankful for God's church working in our lives. It's always such an encouragement uh, to pastor a church that's willing to share uh, thanksgivings uh, together. Uh, Also on that day at the end of the service, we will have our annual members meeting where we will do several things together. One, we will actually be like on record discussing. Uh, We will not be voting in that members' meeting on those subjects, but we need to hold an official discussion and an opportunity for you to make motions or whatever you would like to do as we would do in a members' meeting. So that will be in two Sundays. We will also vote on the 2024 Ministry Action Plan. Uh, If you're new, that's our budget, uh, which church members is available at the information desk today. So if you would like to see the proposed uh, map from our elders' Uh, and personnel team and finance team, you can pick that up at the information desk. I believe it was actually emailed to you this week. And then we will also, during that service, be taking an, a special offering. We do not budget for benevolence needs in our own congregation. But there are members of our church and regular attenders of our church that occasionally need help. They, they need help with things. It's happened on multiple occasions just this year. And the fund that we do that out of is nearly at zero. I actually think it may be at completely zero. So uh, we thought Thanksgiving would be a good opportunity for us to take an offering. So that evening, we're going to take an offering, and everything that's given uh, during that offering is going to go towards local benevolence, meaning benevolence for people that attend this church. We have things in our budget for how we support uh, ministries outside of this church that, that help people in our community. So I'd encourage you, if you're able, to come uh, a, uh, willing to give that night as we gather together and as we have a members' meeting together. Now, let me talk about the sermon. If you weren't here last week, this sermon is going to be different. If you were here last week, it's kind of a continuation from what we did last week. We're calling this an excursus, which is a a deviation. We, we're still in our series in 1 Corinthians, but there are two subjects both for our uh, purposes in the book of 1 Corinthians and for where we are as a congregation, thinking about these constitution and bylaw changes. Our elders thought it would be Uh, Good and right for us to spend two weeks thinking doctrinally together about church membership and church leadership If you were not here last week, I would encourage you and we we put all of our sermons online Every sermon I've ever preached in this pulpit is on on our website, but I would Encourage you to go back and listen to last week's. I really think it will be helpful to you Uh, These sermons really serve as part one and part two as as you'll see i'm going to reference some things that I said Uh, just last week so would you if you didn't hear that would you go back and listen to it Uh, and as we consider these things together uh, these these are important important ideas doctrinal ideas as we try to ask the question not does what does one text specifically say which is 99% of the time what we do in here on Sunday mornings but what does the whole bible have to say on a specific subject this week church leadership would you pray with me please father we thank you for your goodness to us and your grace to us for bringing us together as the people of Nansman River Baptist Church. What a joy it is to gather with this people every week on the Lord's Day to sing and to pray and to read your scripture, to be challenged and changed by it. Father, Thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy, for the encouragement and the admonition and even the correction that we receive by being in relationship with one another, by being part of this church, your church. Father, we pray your blessing on this time that we spend in your word this morning. Would by the the power of your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, would would, would we understand better your authority and the authority that you have entrusted to your congregation and the authority that you've entrusted to under-shepherds within that congregation, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So our subject this morning is leadership. Who are the leaders of the church? How do the leaders of the church derive, from where do the leaders of the church derive their authority? It would be impossible to talk about church leadership without first talking about Jesus. I want you to notice this in the main idea of the sermon today, that the subject of church leadership must begin with Jesus. It doesn't begin with a person. It doesn't begin with people outside of Christ himself. Look at the main idea. Jesus Christ, the head of the church, establishes through his word a system of leadership for the local church that allows for maximum effectiveness in our mission. I'm going to argue for two things this morning. First and foremost, that Christ is the sole authority of the church but he then authorizes, which means to give authority away. He authorizes the congregation in certain ways, and he authorizes a plurality of elders in other ways. But that Jesus retains authority over his church by instructing his church how to do things in his word, and it matters. It matters. Now, for those of you that have been here a long time, or maybe you've come through Connect class and you've heard me explain the difference between first order, second order, and third order doctrine. Let me place this sermon in in the midst of that idea. First order doctrines are those things that we say all Christians believe, and if you don't believe those things, you're, you're not a Christian according to the scripture. Well, church leadership outside of Christ being the head of his church, is not a first-order doctrine. So some of the things we're going to talk about today at the beginning are certainly first-order, that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. But these are also not third-order things, meaning there are they're things that somehow meet in the middle. They're they're these second order principles and doctrines that are important enough for us to say, to kind of plant our flag and say, this is who we are as a church. Because the Bible has given us, Christ through his word, given us specific instructions for how we're supposed to organize ourselves, how we're supposed to think about how we exercise his authority, both congregationally and in leadership through elders, primarily, and that by doing this, we are able to have what I'm calling here in the main idea, maximum effectiveness, meaning we believe to not do this would not make us not Christian. It wouldn't make us not a church, but it would limit our effectiveness in our mission to make disciples that make disciples. We want to be as close to the biblical model as we possibly can be. Because by being as close to the biblical model as we can be, we are then able to be as effective as we can be at the mission that Christ has entrusted to his church of making disciples until he returns. So we're going to see this in two main ideas really two main points today as we walk our way through this main idea. The first is this, Jesus Christ rules his church by entrusting his authority to local congregations and local elders. Now you may assume that this point is simply understood, but a lot of confusion exists around even this very idea. So I would like to spend a few minutes here at the beginning of the sermon establishing this doctrinal foundation upon which I will build some practical ideas in our second point. So I invite you just to stick with me as we walk through this idea first. Look at these. You'll see kind of how, who Christ is and how Christ does this. First, Christ is, undenial, is the undeniable head of the local church. When Pastor Brian and I, months ago, were talking about this service and then this last week, we talk about the services months in advance and then we talk about them a week in advance. As we've had conversations about this service, one thing was abundantly clear. The songs that we needed to sing together today needed to affirm one basic truth, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And so, If you think about the songs that we sang before I came up here to preach, that's what we sang about. We sang about the authority of Jesus, that Jesus is the authority. He has universal authority. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 says, And he put all things under his feet, his here is Jesus, and gave him, that's Jesus, as head over all things to the church. So Paul is making an argument in the beginning of Ephesians about the gospel of Jesus, and then he talks about the current position of Jesus in two ways. First, that he's put all things under his feet, which represents his universal authority, meaning that there is nothing in all of creation that Christ does not claim to have authority over, that all things are under the authority of Jesus. But the second part of that, that he gave him as head over all things to the church, means that there is a special and unique exercise of Christ's authority in relation to, to his church. That Christ, all things are under his feet, meaning he has authority over them, but he has this special relationship with his people, with his church, with his bride. He is our head. And we need to recognize that that, that, that he is the head of the church, that w- this is not Ryan Bryce's church. No matter how long I pastor and the Lord allows me to stand in this pulpit week in and week out, this is not my, this is not my church. By the way, it's not yours either. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Christ's church. The, the, this local body, and we're not only talking about the universal church. We're more on the universal church. Go back and look at what I said last week. We're not only talking about the universal church. We're talking about the local church. We're talking about the church at Ephesus. And we're talking about the church here at the corner of Bridge Road. That this is Christ's church. He is our head. Now we jump forward one chapter in Ephesians chapter 2 and we read this. So then, talking about people in the church, members you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So you're members of something built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So this is a, Paul uses a different analogy in Ephesians 2 than he uses in Ephesians 1, but it furthers his argument that Christ is the cornerstone, he says in verse 20. He's the cornerstone of a foundation, that foundation being the apostles and the prophets. Well, the apostles and the prophets are dead, but they left something for us. What did they leave? They left for us the word of God. They left for us the New Testament, having affirmed the Old Testament already. So they left for us the Bible. So then the church, with Christ as the cornerstone, meaning, again, head, cornerstone, this is just talking about his authority. Christ is the cornerstone, and the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, meaning the church is built on the instruction of Christ to his church through his authoritative word. So how does Christ exercise his authority in our church? Because while we would affirm what Matthew 18 says, where two or three of you are gathered, I am, there I am with you, right? So we can affirm that as we gather in a special, unique way, Christ is with us, but he is not physically, bodily standing in this room, is he? So then we have to ask the question, how does Christ exercise his authority over the local church? He does it through his word. He has told us, what we are supposed to do. He has told us how we are supposed to act. He has told us how we are supposed to be in relationship with one another. He has told us how we are supposed to organize ourselves, particularly as it relates to leadership. Christ has told us through his authoritative word, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, of which Christ is the cornerstone, how we are to do what we are to do. Without Christ, there is no church. Without the gospel of Jesus, there is no church. So let me just pause briefly for just a moment and, and affirm this to you. We don't come here every more, every Sunday morning thinking about you know, how good we are or what we've done. We're not here to try to make ourselves feel better. We're unified around one central message. It's that message that we talked about Sunday after Sunday, as we walked through 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, it's the gospel that unifies us together. It's the good news of Jesus. So if you're with us today and you're like, I have no idea, Pastor, like a category for what you're talking about. Here's the one thing I want you to hear. If you're new to all of this, maybe somebody just invited you today. and You say, I have no idea what this sermon is about. Here's the one thing I want you to hear. Jesus Christ died so that he could redeem a people for himself, we call those people the church. And that, his, that good news, his death and resurrection and salvation that comes through it is offered to you, that you could be a part of the church through faith in the work of Christ. We call this the gospel. And it's important for us to recognize that gospel truth and that it is that gospel truth that unifies us because Christ is the head of his church. That he has redeemed a church. If someone else had redeemed a church, they could be the head. But they couldn't. Only Christ could. And it is his word, it is through his word that he exercises the authority as the head. And through his word, his, the way that he exercises that authority through his word, he then authorizes, passes on that authority in two ways. So, one to the congregation, which is the next point, and one to elders. But let's make this clear. No authority exists outside of that which Christ authorizes. So, no one can claim authority in the church unless they can go to Christ and his word and say, here is where we derive this authority. This is an important point for us as congregationalists. It's an important point for us as as people who believe in the autonomy of the local church that we would say to our Christian brothers and sisters who would organize differently, we would say, we don't believe you have the authority to do those things because we don't see those things in Scripture. That we want to look to Scripture and say, here is who Christ authorizes to lead the church. So second point, Christ authorizes local congregations to exercise his ruling authority. So Christ rules the church, he gives the church his word, and through his word, he authorizes people who covenant together to be a church. Now I'm not going to rehash all of last week, so either draw that up in your mind, or when the service is over sometime today, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to it. But we must recognize the truth of what we saw last week. And that is that Jesus authorizes the local church to do certain things. We looked at three of them last week. We're going to look at two more of them here in a minute. But the three that we looked at last week is Jesus authorizes the local church to set doctrine from Galatians chapter 1 that we get to say this is what this church believes That from Matthew 16, Christ authorizes his church to admit members, to exercise the authority, the keys of the kingdom, to say, yes, you are with us, and to discipline or even dismiss members, to say, because of your actions, we can no longer affirm your testimony of faith and you are no longer with us. Those are three ways that Christ has authorized the congregation. Not individual members of the congregation, but the collective, the members who have covenanted together to exercise the authority of Christ on earth. Now, in a moment, we're going to see two more and as it relates to leadership, affirming elders and disciplining elders, that the congregation does that as well, but we're going to get that to the second point. Now, so Christ authorizes the congregation, and I spent 50 minutes preaching on that last week, so we'll move on. Number three, Christ authorizes those who serve in the office of elder to exercise his shepherding authority. So we're talking about the ruling authority of Christ given to the congregation, set doctrine, admit members, dismiss members, appoint elders, discipline elders, which we'll explore a little bit further. But Christ authorizes a smaller group within the congregation. This only exists in the local church that the local church as a whole, the members are authorized to do certain things, and then a subset of those members are authorized to do something else. That subset is elders. Now, the Bible may the Bible uses multiple words for this office. It uses the word elder, it uses the word overseer, and it uses the word pastor. These are not different people. These are the same people, and the varying words just describe varying functions of that office for instance acts chapter 20 verse 28 acts chapter 20 paul has called at the beginning of that chapter the 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 elders from the church at ephesus to come and meet him in a port city called miletus and he thinks he's going to his death and so he's saying goodbye to them and he gives some instructions this is included in that so he's talking to elders pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the holy spirit has made you overseers So overseers, he's talking to elders and he calls them overseers and they're paying attention to a flock because you shepherd a flock, that's what a pastor does, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the Ephesian elders, here's what I want you to note from this, the Ephesian elders have been made elders by whom? Verse 28, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So from whom do elders this subset of leaders within the local church derive their unique authority they don't derive it from the congregation they derive it from God himself from Christ in this case it's the Holy Spirit but if Paul would have said from Jesus or if he'd have said from the Father it's the same thing it's from God that elders are derived the elders derive their authority from God so let me illustrate this with two bad illustrations these are things I have, I, I, hand, hand to God, I'm telling you the truth. You should hope I would, always, I'm always doing that, right? I have never heard these words in this, in this congregation. But these are things that I have actually been told by other people prior to me coming to pastor here. Right? This is, this is one. I've been told these very words. You work for me because my tithes pay your salary. That, that really kind of rings to us a little bit, doesn't it? Like somebody would think they'd tell a police officer, You work for me because my taxes pay your salary, right? And then we just bring that into the local church. L- listen, folks, that, that, that is a wrong headed view of the relationship between elders and, and, and the congregation, all right? Now, but there's a wrong headed view on the other side, too. So this one I heard when I was in seminary, so it was a long time ago. From a guy who was being dismissed from his third church in as many years, three churches. Somebody should have finally caught on, right? Three churches in three years are firing this pastor. And I'm sitting here in seminary with this guy, and I'm like, "What? It, w- w- you know, the the vote was coming up. I'm like, what are you going to get up and say to them? Like what? Like really? What what are you what are you going to say? And this this is this is literally what he said. He said, I'm going to tell them that I don't work for you, I work for Jesus. Okay? Can I just tell you that neither one of those ideas are right? That, that, that it, it's just as wrong for a member to come up to one of our pastors and say, you work for me because I pay my tithes pay your salary. It's just as wrong for a pastor to stand in authority and say, I don't care what you think. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. I, I, because I, I, don't, I don't work for you. There, there's a relationship that we have to be able to see that is biblically faithful that allows both the congregation to exercise their authority and elders to exercise their authority in a way that makes us most effective in our gospel mission. So there's an important doctrinal point here that the congregation and the elders derive their authority From Christ to do what has been instructed of them in Christ's word. So, what we need to do, what we're going to do for the rest of the sermon, is we need to go to the scripture and say, What does the Bible say that the congregation should do in relation to elders? And that's what you should then do. And what does the Bible say the elders should do in relationship to the congregation? And that's what the elders should do. Because You're not the authority, and we're not the authority. Christ is the authority, and we're all deriving our collective authority. There's not one individual in this room that can claim authority. It's always the collective, it's the congregation. And it's the plurality that Christ is entrusting these things to. So that's kind of the doctrinal foundation. Christ is the head. He's entrusting some authority to the church. He's entrusting some authority to the elders within the church. And now we're going to explore the relationship between those two things. So the relationship between the congregation and the elders should be one of mutual respect, trust, and submission. There's a lot said there. Mutual, meaning it's back and forth that the congregation should respect, trust, and submit to elders in some ways. And the elders should respect, trust, and submit to the congregation in some ways. That there's this back and forth mutual respect, trust, and submission. So here's how we, the congregation and the elders, exercise our varied authority from Christ in the local church. We do it by doing what Scripture says tells us to do so let's start with the congregation let's start with the bigger group of people that's you there are four things that the there are four things that the scriptures instruct you to do as the congregation as it relates to elders the congregation does these four things affirms biblically qualified men to the office of elder honors them as gifts from the lord submits to them as under shepherds of christ and holds them accountable whenever necessary so it's the four things the Bible tells you, the congregation, to do as it relates to the elders whom the Holy Spirit gives to the church. So let's look at these from the scriptures. So The first one, a firm biblically qualified men to the office of elder. We, we see this in multiple places in the New Testament, but the best place that we see this is in the, the pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy that Paul has sent his protege Timothy to Ephesus to help straighten some things out in the church there. And he writes two letters to him. And the first one, he really writes about the organization of the local church. So we are indebted to how we organize the local church to First Timothy, probably above any other letter in the New Testament. And so 1 Timothy 3, for instance, tells us that, that we need to have elders. 1 Timothy 3 says the saying is Trustworthy. If anyone aspires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, remember, overseer, pastor, elder, this is the same thing. So that the church needs to have these people. Now, I'm going to make this argument when we get to the end again too. A church can be a church without elders. Since, you know, this week we celebrated the 506th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And since the very early days of the Protestant Reformation, we've defined a church in two ways. A church is a group of people who are preaching God's word and rightly administering or administering the sacraments, we would call them ordinances. Basically, the the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are member controls. And the word is the gospel. And so any group of people that covenant together around the gospel and admit and dismiss members, they're a church. They don't have to have elders. But they're going to need elders really quickly or it's going to devolve into chaos, right? And so a group of people could covenant together and not have any elders at first, but very quickly they're going to see the need, the biblical need, for somebody to do some things in the life of the local church. And they're going to turn to 1 Timothy 3, and they're going to look in their church, and they're going to say, do we have any men in our church who fit these qualifications? And if so, they're going to be our elders. But they don't need to be hasty in this. 1 Timothy 5 encourages us in that. Where Paul says, verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The laying on of hands. This is in the context. We're going to look at some of the verses surrounding this in a minute. This is in the context of selecting elders and even disciplining elders. Like, don't, don't rush into this. You know, we have, we have two men currently in our church who are in the process, in our elder process, and they've been in this process for the better part of a year we're still not ready to recommend them to you as elders. I think we're, I'm prayerfully, Lord willing, we're getting close. But we take 1 Timothy 5, seriously. Don't, don't, don't be hasty in laying on of hands. Take your time, Paul says. And, and you notice he guards it to, to purity. We guard the purity of the church by making sure that we're not appointing unqualified elders. It's one of the things that the church does. You exercise your authority as the local church by saying, this guy is qualified to lead us. I think it's the most important vote that we take, and there's several things that we vote on as a congregation, but none of them are more important than when we together say, this guy here is going to be one of the men that lead us because they have so much possibility to lead us astray if they are not qualified. Number two, you, the congregation honors elders as gifts from the Lord. So let's talk about honor first. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul instructs there in verses 12 and 13, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at, be at peace among yourselves. Says, you know, you'll be at peace among yourselves if you respect the men that you have recognized as elders. If if you'll honor them, if you'll respect them, if you'll allow them to do their work, if you'll esteem them very highly in love, there will very often be peace in the church if biblically qualified faithful men are doing the thing that the scripture has entrusted them to do and if the church will let them do it. And so you, you honor elders. This is one of the ways, and you say, wait, how is this exercising authority? This is exercising authority. This is you, the congregation, obeying Christ in his word. Now, you don't honor them to a fault. If they're not biblically qualified or if they're instructing you to do something that is contrary to scripture, you stand and say, wait a second, you're you're not supposed to do that. And we're gonna talk about how you do that in a moment. Now, some of them, we're back in 1 Timothy here, some of them you're going to show honor to in two ways. You honor all elders. Currently, we have seven of them. We are all equal in, in authority in our church, meaning I don't hold some special gavel in, in the elder meeting. I get A vote, right? And I get, I'm one part of the leadership team here. But there are three of us, of those seven, that receive more honor than the other four. We base this on 1 Timothy 5. Let the elder who, elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So all elders are worthy of honor. Some receive double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So one of the ways that you honor some of, not all, but some of the elders in our church is you actually pay us. And and hear this, it's not lost on me that, that my family lives entirely on your graciousness towards us. And Pastor Brian's family and Pastor Jay's family, because you've chosen to double honor us, we live on, on, on your generosity. And we're grateful for it. You're, you're, you're very generous to us. You, you care for us very well. And it's a way of showing double honor. But all elders are worthy of honor. And it's one of the ways that the church exercises their authority by honoring them. And notice I said honoring them as gifts we see this from Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul says, and he gave. So these are gifts. He's giving, Christ is giving something to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Shepherd, teachers is a compound word. This is representing pastors. Apostles and prophets have died away in the first century once the word of God was closed, once the canon was closed. We no longer needed apostles and prophets because Christ has now spoken to his church. And so you honor elders as gifts. Number three, you submit to them as under-shepherds of Christ. This is the instruction of 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 the word that not only do you honor them, but you, you heed their leadership. What in the world would it good would it do to recognize men as leadership in leadership, but then never actually listen to them? We get this from Hebrews chapter 13. The author of Hebrews in verse seven says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their the way of life and imitate their faith. And he says in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. The author of Hebrews says, you know, you really, what same thing Paul says about being at peace. You really will be better off if you let the men who, the Holy Spirit has given to the church and the church has recognized as leaders, if you'll let them lead, the the church will be better off. The church will be at peace. It'll be an advantage to you, the congregation. But then there are times, number four, that you are required as the congregation to exercise your authority in holding them accountable. So I said, the most important vote I think we take as a congregation is to recognize elders equal to that, is a vote that we've not had to take in the eight years that I've pastored here, but we are prepared to take if needed, and that would be to remove an elder from the office. Paul describes how to do this in 1 Timothy chapter five. Starting in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that, they, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of elect angels, I charge you in these rules without prejudging, do nothing from partiality, Then he says in verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Here's why verse 24 is important. It comes right after that, do not be hasty and laying on of hands. So he says, some people, it's going to be really obvious that they should not be elders. It's going to be so obvious, you're not going to elect them as elders and some, you're not going to realize it until it's too late. And so he provides for us in God's word, in his goodness to us. He provides to the congregation a way of saying, you know what? You're no longer qualified based off of your actions or what you're teaching to us. And we shouldn't take this lightly. This is why he says only do it on the uh, the evidence of two or three witnesses because sometimes people just want to accuse pastors of things that aren't true. Sometimes they just get their feelings hurt over something and they're going to go cause a stir. And so there's some specific things that we're supposed to do. But if there is a legitimate charge against one of our pastors, church, you have the responsibility to do something about it. Not to just sit quietly and say, well, we're, we're going to honor them. Far too many churches have honored men who are not worthy of honor. There are churches right here in Hampton Roads whose pastors have broken the law. I mean, you've read about these things in the paper. They've broken the in despicable ways, and the church has said, oh, we're just gonna honor them as our pastor. Absolutely not. We have to guard the purity of the church, both by recognizing godly, faithful men to be our elders, honoring them, submitting to them, listening to them, but also holding them accountable. That is how you, one of the ways you exercise your authority. What about the authority of the elders? The elders then faithfully shepherd the congregation by practicing spiritual oversight, teaching right doctrine, equipping members for ministry, and guarding against false teachers and sinful influences. So just like your authority, the congregation's authority, I should say our, not your, because by the way, the elders are part of the congregation. I need to watch my pronouns here. We exercise our authority As the congregation, by doing these things, and then we, the smaller group elders, exercise their authority by doing these four things. The first is practicing spiritual oversight. 1 Peter chapter 5, by the way, in 1 Peter chapter 5, you're gonna notice both the word elder, pastor, and overseer describing the same group of people. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd, that's the word pastor, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So what is one of the things that elders do? There's a lot that elders do in 1 Peter 5, but one of the things that we do is we exercise spiritual oversight, that we look out for you, both as a congregation, as a collective, and as individual members. Tomorrow will be our, our monthly elder meeting, and you know that we will discuss and pray for one-twelfth of the members of our church Tomorrow. We work our way through the entire membership roster, which today stands at three hundred and fifty four people work our way through the entire membership roster every year and it's not just like you know how how's so and so doing but like we actually pray for you We're, because we, we recognize that we have a we have, we have a pastoral responsibility to you, and so we practice pastoral oversight individually and then And then as the congregation, we spend hours talking about how our congregation is accomplishing our mission and how we're doing it and and the way that we're doing it. That's spiritual oversight. Number two, teaching right doctrine. In his second letter, pastoral letter to Timothy, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. One of the ways that elders practice our authority in the local church is that we teach. Now, we're not the only teachers in the church, God gifts people to teach in the church, and we give people the opportunity to teach. But the primary teaching in our church should be done by elders. This is why in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that an elder must be able to teach. It's one of the qualifications because he can't teach. He can't do 2 Timothy 4. He's got to be able to at least in some ways be able to teach. It doesn't mean they all need to be able to do what I do, by the way. We recognize that I hope God has uniquely gifted me in the life of this church to be the primary preacher. And, And I... I can't tell you how grateful I am for the Lord's gift in that and for your recognition of that. And so all of our elders may not come up here and do what I do, but by standing up here doing what I do, I do that not as one pastor, but I do it based on the authority that the collective, the plurality of elders, share and guard as we teach right doctrine. Number three, we equip members for ministry. Ephesians 4, verse 12 Ephesians 11, 4.11 said he gives to the church, right? So they're gifts to the church, and then what do they do? They equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So our responsibility is not to do the work of ministry. Our responsibility is to equip you to do the work of ministry. You're the church. We're the church together. We're doing this together. And so we equip you. We, we train you. We encourage you. We exhort you. We correct you so that we can all be faithful in accomplishing our mission of making disciples together. Number four, by guarding against false teachers and sinful influences. Go back to what Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Starting so verse 28, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is, this is what we do. We have to pay careful attention to our own teaching and to teaching that's outside of the church. Because 2 Timothy, what Paul says in 2 Timothy is true, that there are going to be people who try to lead the church astray. There are going to be false teachers that try to come in. There's going to be false doctrine that works its way in. The enemy is always trying to attack the church of God through its teaching. And so we guard against that, and we take that responsibility seriously. And we really do. If, If... this is why when people come to us and they're like, I would like to do a Bible study on, we're like, we'd we really like to see it, please. Because <laughs> there's just tons and tons of bad stuff out there. There's lots of bad preachers out there. Can I tell you, we live in a, we live in a great day with incredible access to amazing teaching. Absolutely amazing teaching. And there are some wonderful Bible teachers that have sermons online and have Bible studies online, and there's a good bit of it that we could commend to you. But do you know who I think should be your primary teacher in life? The elders of this church. I think you should listen to the elders of this church and the teaching of the elders of this church more than you listen to John Piper, more than you listen to David Platt, more than you listen to John MacArthur, more than you listen to whoever it is that you listen to. You should listen to the currently seven men who elder this church because this is your church. This is where you have covenanted together, and these are the elders that you have recognized. You should listen. Testing, Galatians 1, testing everything against the the word of God to make sure that we're not teaching something false and holding us accountable if we do. So you see this derived authority from Christ to the congregation, from Christ to the elders, and, and, and these, this mutual respect, mutual honor, mutual accountability. This is important. And then the Bible provides one additional caveat for us, one additional group of people that we have, over the last, since August, been discussing a lot as a congregation. And those are people known as deacons. So notice the third point here, the congregation and elders. So this is both of our authorities. We come together to entrust administrative leadership to biblically qualified deacons to ensure elders are not overburdened. Now, there is very little guidance in the scripture for what elders do. We know that elders exist from Philippians chapter one. We know that Phoebe was a deacon of the church at Syncrea from, from Romans chapter 16. We know from 1 Timothy 3 what the qualifications of deacons are. But really, that's about it. it. So there is more leeway. When the Bible establishes strict parameters, our responsibility as a church is to function within those strict parameters. When the Bible pr- provides more leeway and less strict parameters, then we have more leeway. And more leeway is given within the scriptures for the office of deacon than probably anything else in New Testament ecclesiology. There's just not a lot about who deacons are. This is why the office of deacon functions so differently from one church to the next, even amongst like-minded churches. Even when I get together with churches, for instance, other pillar network churches who do things very similarly to us, when we start talking about deacons, our deacons may do one thing, their deacons may do something else. I was just having this conversation last week. They were telling, one of the churches, tell me about a deacon, and I was like, at our church, that would be an elder. I'm like, well, at ours, it's a deacon. It's fine. It really is fine. We have to understand that there are looser parameters around who is a deacon, In the scriptures. So what we want to do is just make sure we're within that parameter. So 1 Timothy 3 tells us in verse 10, this is talking about deacons, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So the Bible, just as it gives us qualifications for elders, it gives us qualifications for deacons. Now, an important point for us. A church, just like a church, can be a church without elders. A church can be a church without deacons. But eventually, they are going to become necessary. I, I texted, uh, actually this morning, because I thought, that should be a good illustration. It came to me kind of last minute. So I texted this morning with Pastor Mark Turner, our our. Uh, the pastor of Redemption Heights Church, who was our church planter. We got to stop talking about Redemption Heights like it's a church plant. They're a church that we still assist and support some, right? Mark was 10 years a pastor here. We brought on James Walker, and we put him through our elder process. And when, when we planted Redemption Heights Church in Philadelphia some four to five years ago, we sent a plurality of elders. We didn't send a single deacon. We sent some church members, Because you had to have church members. We sent some church members. They covenanted together. They had a plurality of elders from the get go. But do you know they went almost four years without having any deacons? They, They elected their first three deacons this year. Now, why? Why would they go so long? Well, because in those early days, there really wasn't a necessity to have them. But as a church grows, as a church does more, then more responsibility begins to be laid on the shoulders of the spiritual leaders of the church, the elders, and deacons become more necessary. Because what deacons ultimately are, regardless of what they actually do, what deacons are in the scriptures is a shock absorber. They're someone who takes some responsibility, they unburden, they take some responsibility off of the elders. Now, they can't take spiritual oversight off of the elders because that's what the Bible's told elders to do. They can't take teaching off of the elders because that's what the Bible has told them to do. The things that we see elders entrusted to do are the things the elders are supposed to do. Other things in the church can be entrusted by the congregation and the elders to deacons. And we see this in a descriptive way in Acts chapter 6. Now, Acts 6 doesn't have elders yet. And I don't think Acts 6 is actually describing for us the first deacons because there's only one local church at this point it exists in Jerusalem and the apostles are the head of it. But as it grew to the point of having thousands of members of it by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, a need arises, and I talked about this last week when I said, what did they do? They had, a, they had a members meeting, and that's what they did in Acts 6. But listen to the words of the apostles. Because a need has arisen, the apostles don't have time to take care of it, so they say, therefore, brothers... Church, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The apostle said, we're gonna keep being the spiritual leaders of this church. Y'all are gonna to have to find some people from among you to take care of this. And that's what deacons are. And so in our church, the way that we have applied this in our congregation is we look for things that need to be done that are outside of the purview of our elders. And we just say, hey, as a congregation, we say, hey, will you, so-and-so, take care of this? And so we have deacons of baptism and deacons of Lord's Supper and deacons of the hospital ministry and deacons of our lockup team and deacons of our security team. Like This is what, what, what these people do so the elders don't have to. Because if we didn't have any of those deacons doing those things, I would be here 90 hours a week and Pastor Brian would be here 90 hours a week. Pastor Jay, our families would struggle and our lay elders' families would struggle. And so we need people to do these things, to absorb some of that shock, to take over in some non-elder ways within the congregation. Deacons don't have a unique authority like the congregation and elders do, by the way. There's nowhere in scripture that talks about them being an authority at all. There's nowhere in scripture that talks about them being gifts from God to the church. They are simply members of the church who are of good repute that the church would say, hey, we think you should do this so our elders don't have to, to free them up for doing the things that the scripture instructs elders to do. So what? We must regularly raise up biblically qualified leaders within our congregation and support them in their work as we make disciples together. We may have gotten all the way through this, and you still have the question that I asked at the beginning. Does this really matter? I mean, if Jesus is the head of the church, is the way that we think about deacons, and the way we think about elders, and the way that we think about membership, does this really matter? Yes, it matters, because Christ, the head of the church, established for us in his word how to do some of these things. And so because of that, by imitating what Christ has said, and by being obedient to what Christ has said, we are able to then obey Christ in his mission better. And so, yes, it absolutely matters. And so, while we can affirm the Christianity of churches that would Function in their membership and in their leadership differently than we do, we're, we're going to stand firm and say we think for our congregation, this is what the Bible says, and for so for our effectiveness in the mission of God, we're going to stick as closely to that as possible. So congregation, let me give you an encouragement. We need you to be on the lookout, particularly for additional elders of our church. You know who make good elder candidates? I mean this. You wanna know who make the best elder, not just good elder candidates, the best elder candidates? People who are already eldering. They're just already doing some of these things. They're, they're already teaching. It's just like a few people. They're already teaching those people. They're already kind of shepherding. They're already calling and checking on you. They're already encouraging you in your walk for the Lord. They're kind of already doing these things. Not officially. They've not been recognized by the church. to do. They're just kind of already doing it. We turn the word elder into a verb here. Just, they're already eldering. That's what, that's what they're doing. As you recognize these men, here's what I need you to do. Congregation, I'm giving you a task. Are you ready? When you see these guys doing that, you need to go up to them and say, I think you would be a great elder at this church. Because they may not think that they would. And with all of the elders that we've brought on in my time here, every one of them have told me, I don't know that I'm fit for this. I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'm, I'm right for this. That's, that's just some humility. But if they hear it from you, maybe they'll listen. Hey, wives, how about you tell your husbands? You know, I really think you'd be a great elder. If they're biblically qualified. If they're not, please don't tell them that. <laughs> read First Timothy 3 before you do it. But, but if they are, read Titus 1, because Titus 1 also gives us. But if they are, why don't you encourage them? I'm going to make the strongest call that I have ever corporately made men of Nanswin river baptist church we need more elders at our church we do we're recommending to you a system that is going to require our lay elders to take a respite to take at least six months off every six years and because of that we need more men who will aspire to the office of overseer There are many men in this church that myself or other pastors have been talking with for months, if not years, about this responsibility. This is not a guilt trip, but I just need you to hear me clearly. We need you. A church this size, I'm going to say something may shock some of you, I think a church this size would benefit from having somewhere between 15 and 20 elders. We have seven. You say, isn't 15 to 20 too many? No not for 354 members, not to be able to integrate the kind of growth that we've seen in the last 18 months around here, not to be able to do the kinds of things that we want to do for the glory of God through making disciples in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We need more elders. Now we don't need to rush to appoint them. We're not going to be hasty and laying on of hands. We certainly don't want unqualified men to serve in this office, but we have qualified men sitting in these pews who are just saying, well, I just, you know, I don't know if I... Now, listen to me, men. I, I'm not trying to make a pragmatic argument here, but you need to hear this. If you don't do it, who will? We need need you. The Bible has said that we need you. And we don't professionalize the pastorate here because the scriptures don't professionalize it. We're not going to go outside of this church to find elders. We're going to find them from faithful men that are sitting in this room that this congregation, through the authority given to it by Christ, will recognize as elders. And so if this would be you, if you would aspire to the office of overseer, you start that process by sending one of our elders. You just pick me, rbrice at nansmanriver.com. Send me an email and say, I aspire to the office of overseer. I would like to have this conversation. And It will begin a long process where we walk with you, making sure that you are capable of doing this, able to do this, equipped and qualified to do this, and then ultimately asking this congregation, do you think this man is for this? Because by regularly raising up biblically qualified leaders within our congregation, we are able to most faithfully answer Christ's call to his church to make disciples within this congregation. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to you again for your word, recognizing that it is true and good, recognizing that it calls us to do things maybe that our flesh would rebel against like like submitting or even like holding someone accountable or to doing things that we never thought we would do, like being an elder or being a deacon of a church. God, we, I just ask that you would, because you're the one who gives them, would you give more elders to this congregation? Would you place it in the hearts of men to aspire to the office of overseer? And God, would you guard the peace and unity that this church feels, that that I'm so grateful that I can preach this in a congregation that I believe does this so well, that both manages congregational authority and plurality authority in a way that is Christ-honoring and biblically faithful. Would you guard that in us? Help us to guard against people who would seek to cause disunity, bring in false teaching, lead us astray. Help us to be faithful to your mission, the gospel of Jesus, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with us as we worship?